0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. There was a a town hall meeting of sorts uh, in Stony Creek last night. Now, we have been talking for the last couple of weeks, I guess, months really, about uh, the federal government's proposed uh, income tax renovations, uh, refurbishing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Small businesses, uh, people in the medical profession, many people, as a matter of fact, in business, are very concerned about the implications of this. Uh, We are being assured by the finance minister and the prime minister that no, 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 this is this is really all about fairness. Well, I don't know that uh, that, that was really the message that uh, the people that showed up at uh, the old Stony Creek City Hall uh, had in mind yesterday. It was uh, a meeting that was called by the Member of Parliament for the area, for Hamilton East Stony Creek, Bob Bertino, former Hamilton mayor, of course, and uh, the MP, the Liberal MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek. Uh, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us a lowdown on what occurred last night. Bob, thanks uh, for the time. It's good to have you with us again today thanks very much for
1: the opportunity, bill.
0: Listen, this uh, this was your call. Tell us uh, why you wanted to set this up. Maybe let's go back to square one here.
1: Well, we've been getting messaging. Uh, I think most um, MPs, liberal MPs that I know of uh, have received torrents in some cases. Uh, one nearby MP, somewhere in five hundred number of of emails of uh, concerns and complaints. So it became obvious that we had to confront uh, the problems, the concerns, uh, hear them, and deliver the message to uh, Finance Minister Morneau. And so that's what we're going to do.
0: What did you hear last night?
1: Well, there were over 100 people. I think we counted 106, uh, among them um, physicians, um, private small business owners, um uh, various uh, uh, roles in, in small business. Uh, I'm just trying to run through my mind all the people that were there. But I would say it was a cross section. And uh, no one said anything positive about uh, the government measures, even though there have been explanations and uh, corrections and suggestions of misinformation. And um, this was um, a very high level group. Uh, it was actually quite an honor to hear from. The people who were there because uh, you know, are practicing physicians, names that you would know in in small business, Uh, and in no uncertain terms, saying that uh, these measures were put in place many, many years ago. They've built their businesses around the measures that were in place, and suddenly the government is uh, talking about changing drastically those measures, which would impact on their ability to. Uh, plan for their own pensions and transfer the business to their uh, children or other members of their family upon retirement. So there were a lot of concerns and I was frankly Bill uh, you and I are probably at the same uh, level of understanding of the tax loss which is they send you a message and you pay whatever it says.
0: Yeah halfway through page uh, one your eyes start to glaze over.
1: Exactly. So I didn't want to present myself as some sort of an expert. What I did present myself was a conduit uh, from the messages that I heard directly to the minister. And I met with Minister Morneau uh, about a week ago in Toronto with seven other MPs and delivered some of the messaging that I had heard previously uh, to the minister at that time. And he said, please bring back any comments that you have from uh, members of your riding Uh, to my office, and that is exactly what
0: we're going to do. Let me ask you about that, because I've I've talked to a number of small business people in the medical profession and in other places, Bob, and you got a cross-section of them last night at your meeting, Uh, and and they they actually take exception to the fact that the finance minister is saying, no, you guys don't understand, Uh, because their accountants, if they are not doing their own books, their accountants, who are people who are well-versed in this, are telling them, no, 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 this is bad for you. And the government's saying, no, you guys don't get it. I mean, it's it's getting to the point now where it's almost insulting to the people that are upset about this.
1: Well, they that mood was definitely present at the meeting last night. And I think the problem is that uh, the, the proposals are out there, and then opinion columnists and commentators on uh, radio and television are making comments about the, the government's proposals. And what seems to be missing is the expertise face-to-face between the minister and his staff and the people who do tax planning, because there's obviously uh, two different opinions going here.
0: But that's the case. But like, I, like, and I'm not sitting here saying I've read this over and I think this is a bad th- thing for small business. I'm being told by people that are tax experts that no, this is a bad thing for small business. Matter of fact, the only ones I hear coming to the rescue here are some uh, some big league economists and some commentators who obviously you know just don't seem to care one way or another about what doctors and others are saying right now. So there's there's a, a huge huge conflict. I don't know if you saw the tweet last night. Kenan Loomis uh, from the Chamber was there last night, as you know, Bob. Yeah. Just wanted to let our listeners know that. And he tweeted last night that he says, I don't think I have ever seen an issue that has polarized and infuriated a business community as much as this one has in the last little while. I mean, this is this is a hot button issue that's not going to go away.
1: No, and unfortunately part of it is due to the rhetoric around uh you know, the talking points, the messaging from the government, and when you read through the which I did, the sixty three pages and the minister's statement and the executive summary, uh, you see loopholes, you see a a slight insinuation, not as dramatic as I think some people are are making it to be, but nevertheless, they're feeling that the government is saying, there's a lot of people out there who are using loopholes to give themselves an advantage, and we're going to put an end to that. Well, What does that sound like? It sounds like you've been doing something not quite right. Uh, It speaks to your character. And I can tell you that that was not lost on the people last night uh, who were very eloquent, if not dramatic, in their feelings about who they are and what they do and why they do it. And, you know, Bill, the the, the part that really, I think, hurts these people, and the, the people I know best are the immigrant people, you know, the people from my father's generation who came to the country, and some of them worked in big steel mills and, Others actually set out and established businesses for themselves. A lot of them, I know, were tavern owners, like uh, Wally Mack as an example, Mm -hmm. but I could name many, many others. I was very close to uh, those folks. I would not possibly do what they did to run their businesses, which means working all hours of the day and night, being careful that people aren't you know, removing uh, things from the property, if I can put it that way, hoping that all the staff are going to turn up uh, at some time. Uh, In the case of taverns, unpleasantness that sometimes occurs from, uh, you know, too much drinking. That's just, that's not even talking about doctors and and others. Let me tell you what one oncologist said. He said that he uh, has people coming to see him, who are small business owners who are facing chemotherapy and other treatments, they have to organize it so that they come early in the day so that they can go on and do their business later in the day. And they don't have all of the the benefits and the plans that some people would have and the government uh, workers, you know, we were targeted, well, you've got these gold-plated everythings. Uh, But these business people don't. And so the strain that is put on someone whose health is at risk but still has to continue on doing their business. Of the females, uh, the physicians who want to have a child and have to set the money aside, uh, you know, $1,000 a week, $2,000 a week, $3,000 a week, in their absence to continue the operation of their offices. And that money isn't just sitting there. So – it was very offensive the notion that maybe you were kind of working around the edges looking using loopholes that really set this thing off uh... to the level of anger that we see now so it's almost beyond a rational discussion of this point versus that point it's who do you think we are? We're good people. We work hard in our businesses and we're not using loopholes and we're not cheaters.
0: Everybody who files an income tax form, and, and I don't care if, if if it's your first one, if you're making ten grand a year or you're into the seven figures, it doesn't matter. Everybody you have deductions and there are things that you're allowed to do within the law. And this is something that has been going on for quite some time within the law. And for the government to turn around and characterize this as a loophole indicates, you're absolutely right, that they're trying to screw the government out of money. And that's totally not the case. As a matter of fact, in in the case of the doctors, as I found out later on, this was actually part of the negotiations with the Ontario government. Because they said, look, we're not going to give you the fees you want, because you guys can do this. With yeah. uh, And now there's the federal government's coming around saying, no, you can't anymore. We're going to take that money away from you. So they're saying, hey, wait a second, we had a deal here. Well, who are you guys to break our deal? Uh, so well, I can understand point, why they're upset about this.
1: That point was uh, was highlighted many times by some of the physicians uh, who were there. The, the, the thing I have to stress, Bill, is the respect that I have for the people who showed up. Uh, there were not... Angry people who were going to lose out on on some investment opportunities, these were the folks who treat us in the hospitals, who run businesses. Uh, they're really good people and they're upset and the tax as one one of the most respected businessmen in Hamilton I had a, I had a meeting with him with in this regard and he said those measures were created for a reason somewhat forty five years ago and it was after several years of consultations which led to the uh, measures that are now being used uh, by incorporated individuals he said those reasons are still valid which is giving incentives to people to set up businesses to employ people and to create wealth why are you changing those reasons and did you, did you ask the finance
0: did the finance minister answer that question
1: well, in, not directly. I mean, we we had this discussion, and the what I can tell you is that the government's position is that it still isn't clearly understood by all what is available, and uh, which is confusing to me because I don't really understand the tax lines, and I'm not an incorporated individual. I, I get a salary, a government salary, and the things that go along with it. So I'm really... Uh, compromised in a sense when I'm talking to a room full of people who are totally on their own as incorporated businesses and individuals who are dealing with this with their tax planners directly. So that conversation has to take place between the minister and the bureaucrats and the people who plan these uh, tax measures for these individuals. I'm, uh, it's a blur to me, I have to tell you, and, uh, but what I hear is, is the emotion, which is from very good people who I respect, who are, seem to have good reason for complaining that they cannot uh, carry on with, we, uh, the point I want to make is the transition issue. If there are changes that you want to make, you're asking us to make these changes after october the second after a very brief consultation period and there should be a transition period now it's fair to say in addition to that it wasn't just a question of transition it was stop this don't do it tell the minister we're not on with this so somewhere between those two points of view is is the problem.
0: Here's the thing, and I, I mentioned this in a commentary last week, Bob. We've only got about a minute and a half, two minutes left yeah. here, but I want to I get this point in. I, I mentioned in one of my commentaries, I said, look, at, it's it's the mantra of every government. I don't care what party is in power right now. They have lots of people that work in their finance department trying to find ways to generate revenue. That's how they pay for stuff that they give us. We get that, all right? Yeah. But yeah. I, I, is what Bill Morneau saying here, is what he's trying to tell us, that with all the, the possibilities uh, of, of revision that need to be done with our tax code in this country with all the groups of people that are shoving money into offshore accounts that this group this group of professionals this group of small business people are the ones that he wants to target to try to generate some of that revenue while other people continue to go off and do what they're doing with multi millions of dollars and the government doesn't seem to do anything about it that's the unfairness there
1: well that was the feeling that was you know among many generated by the over 100 people who attended the town hall last night why are you picking on us and uh, i I, i'm not arguing on behalf of the government what i told them was this is a town hall and and finance minister morno said clearly in his uh minister statement and executive summary it's a consultation bring us back he told me directly to my face bring back the comments and so that's what I'm going to do. We're actually compiling all of the comments in a document that we'll uh, present to the finance department. And I don't think there have been many of these town halls across the country, to be honest with you. Um, so uh, I think being first in, first or second, uh, the folks who spoke, their positions will be heard, because that's going to Ottawa as soon as we can uh, complete the document.
0: Well, uh... There's a big difference between hearing and listing, and I guess they, the, the ball's going to be in uh, the finance minister's court after this. Uh, Bob, I know this is not the end of this story. It's just another chapter, in it. we appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to us about it this morning. Thanks for this. Thanks so much, Bill. Bob Bertine, of course, the uh, member of Parliament, the Liberal member of Parliament uh, for Hamilton East Stony Creek, and uh, he got an earful at the town hall meeting last night, uh, and I think understandably so. Uh, uh, interesting from Alexis at B. Kelly at 900CHML.com. says, the reason there's such a hot-button issue here with the business community is that we are politically active. We are astute. We are educated. We are not a group that has the wool pulled over our eyes easily. Uh, bang on. That's, I think, the feeling a lot of people in business have right now. Alexis, thanks so much for the email on this. And uh, I understand that, that that the government's trying to find ways to generate. We get that, okay? But why this group? And, and why in, in, I think, such an unfair manner? And that's something the finance minister and the prime minister, for that matter, have to answer to. You're listening to The
1: Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: Hamilton City Councilors got an earful yesterday uh, from uh, the auditor. Uh, they asked the auditor to look into consulting costs for the city of Hamilton. And uh, they want less consulting as a result, and more work done in-house on city projects. Uh, following this auditor's report, uh, it's, uh, it's it gives you pause for concern when you look at this. the The, the auditor's name is Charles Brown. Works for the city here. He looked at 32 consulting contracts over three years for this report, which found repeated examples of growing and over budget costs, non existent business cases, and even studies that were paid for but never used. And obviously, it's it's an awful lot of money, and uh, questioning now whether or not this is even money well spent. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dan McKinnon, General Manager for Public Works for the City of Hamilton. Uh, Dan, thanks for the time. Really appreciate you joining us today. Morning, Bill. And by the way, I, we asked you to come on here to talk about this, I think in a broader sense. I, I didn't want to point the finger and say, aha, it's that Public Works Department again, uh, because this is a citywide issue. It's not really just one department
2: yeah I think you're you're right. it is a citywide issue but i I don't know what the ratio is but it's uh it's my expectation that public works probably delivers seventy percent of uh, all the consultant assignments in the city so I think there was things in the auditor's report that we have to uh you know we have to respond to and we have to strengthen our processes so i'm uh, I, I certainly don't uh, you know don't hesitate for a minute to uh, uh, to think that this doesn't require attention. Uh, I think the auditor does good work and we rely on him to find these types of uh, weaknesses in our system and we've already got plans in place and we've already been strengthening our system with respect to project management for the last number of years. So, uh, I think it's a healthy process and uh, I would have been surprised if you hadn't find anything. So,
0: Well, exactly. And and to, and to your point, anyway, I mean, Public Works, let's face it, does most of the heavy lifting when it comes to, to budgets and, and, and big-ticket items for the city as well. So uh, that happens. So maybe to set the scene for this, Dan, talk to us a little bit about why a consultant would be engaged in the first place.
2: Well, there's there's a few different examples of why consultants could be engaged. And, and as you can appreciate in Public Works, uh, which I'm obviously most uh, concerned with is we, we deliver projects, capital projects, construction projects, everything from, you know, a washroom at a, at a, at a baseball diamond to a bridge to a complex water treatment facility. So the, uh, the variety of projects that we deliver really span the entire scope of from a technical perspective. So when we're looking at hiring consultants, we may need to hire a consultant to do a design um, for pumps that are going to pump water up the escarpment, which is real hardcore engineering, or we may be designing something as uh, relatively straightforward as a splash pad. So we have to either look for certain skill sets that are out in the consulting industry that we just don't have on staff. That's one of the main reasons that we use consultants. The other reason we use consultants is a lot of times we just don't have the capacity, uh, which means we just don't have enough staff to do the projects ourselves. Most of the design um, that gets done on most of our projects other than road projects, is uh, we don't have any staff to do that. So we have to have outside staff to do that for us. So... Um, one of the things that may not be obvious to, to your listeners is that there, there's a lot of complexity in delivering a project and there's a the complexity that's associated with the design of the project in the field. But there's a lot of complex processes that take place on the city side from the administrative perspective to make sure that we're, we're managing the projects properly. Many projects span over a number of years where they start with uh, a project could start with uh, consulting with the community about a, a play structure or some other uh, capital investment. And then it goes all the way to commissioning. And those take various different phases. And that's what our staff do is they shepherd those projects along from start to finish. And throughout the life of that project, you may have to engage a consulting uh, engineering firm either to do a specific design or just from a capacity perspective to help with the volume of work that we do.
0: I, and, I mean, I've seen that with back in the day when I was on council. And I know that uh, some of the councils that were uh, making statements about this yesterday, I'm sure, have gone through the same process as well. I mean, and to use your example of a splash pad, Uh, you don't just all of a sudden, you know, start breaking ground and building this thing. Usually you let the neighborhood know uh, there's a public meeting. What would you like to see? Here's what we can do. Here's how much it costs, uh, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and there are always city staff there on site, obviously, but uh, is is workload the issue here? because obviously I mean, there are only so many projects and only so many people on staff for the city right now and uh, and frankly <laughs> you 've got sixteen and, and counting the mayor oftentimes counselors, and then the mayor himself saying, "Okay, can you do this? Can you get this for us next week et etc there 's got to be an inordinate amount of pressure on staff to try to come up with some of these deadlines.
2: Yeah, I mean, there'd be nothing that our team would like better than to have our work plan set in January and that work plan doesn't change until the next January because then we can be very predictive in how we deliver those projects. That's not our reality. Um, The reality is things happen. Uh, uh, The flooding that's happened this year, the bin walls on the escarpment, those are the types of things that can disrupt our work plans often. Uh, priorities just change with respect to council, which is completely reasonable where things happen mid-year that they want to change, uh, go, go in a little direct, different direction. The example of the splash pad and the, uh, the play structures is a really good one because often we consult with the community about the design and the look and the feel because we want the community to have some input on that. If we only had one or two standard templates for a splash pad and that's all we were ever going to put in anywhere, that would obviously make it a more efficient process for us. But I think we've heard from the community over the years that they want to have some influence on that. They want it to be complementary to the neighbourhood, so they want to have some influence on that, which means that the designs are going to change. The other thing that most people don't appreciate is when you see the construction activity happening on site, that probably only represents about 25 to 30% of the effort that's gone into that project. Planning ahead of time, getting variances if that's required, having archaeological assessments if that's required, getting zoning changes, getting building permits, all of that. Work that has to be done ahead of time quite often represents half of the effort that goes into that. But that's something that the public doesn't see, and you have to have people managing that process. So um, it is a combination of just capacity, but it's also an issue sometimes of just having the necessary skill set. If if we have a a, a certain skill set that we need once every three years, well, we're not going to hire somebody on staff to to have that because they're going to have a lot of time where they're not going to be really meaningful to us. So that's when you uh, use consultants to help shore up those those uh, skill sets that you need.
0: So when you're in a circumstance like that, and I, I think your example is uh, very apt here, uh, because uh, let's face it, I mean, people look at a, a structure, a building, a bricks and mortar building, and say, well, yeah, you can't build that unless you've got an architect. Somebody has to do drawings on this. Well, it, it just what anything you build, whether it's a splash pad or a five-story building, you still have to go through that planning process and have somebody to d- design this whole thing. Uh, and I, I get that 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 cost an awful lot of money. Uh, I, I would think that probably some people are under the impression that well, it's the city and it's the city land that they're building this thing on, so they can just uh, cut corners and 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 kind of fast track everything. But there's still a process that by law you have to follow, right?
2: Absolutely, we have to we have to follow the building code. We have to follow the rules that's set out by the AODE Act with respect to uh, accessibility for folks with disabilities. Uh, everything from butternut trees to nesting birds to, you, like, the, the, people will, the average person probably, uh, would be very surprised to see all of the regulatory, uh, issues that have to be addressed when you undertake a project. And then there's obviously some of the internal, um, you know, obligations that we have with respect to zoning and variance and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, there, it's, it's a real complex process, even for sometimes as, uh, small an assignment as, uh, you know, um, uh, a play structure in a, in, a, in a park.
0: Well, I mean, let's let's use the example of the Claremont Access. I'm sure you still have nightmares about that, Dan, uh, about the work that had to go into there. And people just say, well, why can't you just repair the wall? Uh, there's engineering work that needs to be done in there. Of course, you're dealing with the Niagara Scarping Commission, too, because you're dealing with the edge of the scarping And uh, you've got to go through their uh, agencies as well. So it's, it's a rather complicated process.
2: Uh, absolutely, it's, it's it's very complicated, and and and, and like I said, the, the variety of skill sets that you need to navigate your way through those processes are uh, are varied, and that's 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 why we end up using consultants.
0: All right, so let me ask you, Sam, because staff, uh, you know, you responded to this, and and like you say, you you knew this was coming. I mean, you you can tell yourself when you're looking at the workload that's going on and how your staff's being allocated. That, uh, that there's a concern, and, and to fill some of those gaps, sometimes these uh, outside workers have to be hired, and there's going to be a consultant's report here. But council's asked you to cut down on that number right now. How can you do that and still be efficient?
2: It's going to be a challenge. Um, you know, w- over the last number of years, we've uh, we've developed a program, or performance excellent program, that looks at um, finding efficiencies and eliminating waste. Um, and so that's, that's what we're going to have to lean on as far as uh, seeing whether or not there's opportunities to... Uh, reduce the number of uh, uh, consultants that we use to support our capital programs. There's other tactics that we can use, too. And I'll give you an example of, as you know, my background's the water department. So yep. if we have uh, a plan that says every year we're going to re- rehabilitate one pump station, well, maybe maybe if we wait one year and we put two pump stations out at once, that can be one consultant assignment with one contractor and one project manager. What it means is that you're going to start to see a bit of an ebb and flow to the way that we deliver our capital program we could probably do it more efficiently. We could probably cut down on um, the number of consultants that we use. But what it means is we're going to wait for capital projects until we can kind of bundle them together as bigger assignments. That's one way to do it. But when you do that, what that means is the community, depending on their, you know, their interest in a particular project, they're going to start waiting more for projects. So I don't know... You know, there's just going to be a, a bit of a blend here as to you know the expectations that the community has around how fast and how regular we can deliver projects and how agile we are with how efficient we're going to be. I, I think there is a, a bit of a trade-off. If we want to be super efficient in the way that we deliver projects, we're going to be less agile in our ability to to change our work plan from from year to year
0: but with every action there's a reaction and is a possible reaction to what you're just suggesting here that you're going to end up accruing more overtime which is again going to be an added cost to the city
2: well these things that's an excellent question these things all play together if uh you know you know but sometimes that's not a bad thing i mean i i I, I guess i'm dispassionate about the conversation in that you know i just try to look at it from a from a from a scientific perspective if you will and I guess what I mean by that is overtime is just a management mechanism for delivering the work that has to be done. I don't see overtime as a good thing or as a bad thing. I see overtime, if it's not managed properly, that's clearly a bad thing. But overtime on its own, often it makes good sense to use overtime. So if you're going to pay a staff for a bit of overtime, and by doing that, you're going to eliminate an entire consultant assignment, I think that's a good use of overtime. So that's that's certainly one of the levers that we could pull to try to reduce the amount of uh, consultants uh, that we use. But if it's a skill set, it's a skill set that we don't have, and we have to use a consultant. We don't, really don't have a lot of options, that we're going to have to continue to use them.
0: It, this is not just a Hamilton problem, though, is it? No, and I, I, I mean know, it's I, our tax dollars, so it's our problem. But I mean, this is going on in other communities as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you know, I think one of the things that uh, you know, my experience when I talk to my peers in the industry is, you know, our community is very, very engaged and very interested in what's going on, um, and I, I think our council really asks excellent questions you know I don't maybe it's my experience from the from the my my years in the water industry where internal auditing auditing is not a bad it's not a bad word that's how you find the weaknesses in your systems and that's how you learn and you strengthen and you get better so so but at the same time you have to have some courage and you have to have some maturity because when you do audits you're going to find things that might be a little bit uncomfortable and so so I look at the work that the auditor's done. I think it was good work. I think it identified some weaknesses that we have, and we have got a, We were already working on some of them back as far as 2014, and uh, we're going to continue to work on that. I think what it does is it helps create a roadmap for us to get better.
0: Uh, one observation, I, I spent nine years down there myself, and uh, I, I, I agree with what you're saying here, and I think that's a uh, the proper way to be addressing this. Uh, But I would add one other variable to this, too, that is beyond your control, is that I think some people on council have to be a little more patient uh, about the request to staff, too, because I've seen way too many examples over the years. And I know you don't want to comment on this, and I won't ask you to. Well, they'll simply say, look, I want to report on this, uh, such and such here uh, for the next council meeting. Well, somebody on staff's got to drop what they're doing to do that to get it done on time. Uh, which really kind of throws everything in, uh, out of whack when you start doing stuff like that. And uh, if it only happened once or twice, it wouldn't be a factor, but I see it happen a lot. And I know that that can add a lot of pressure to staff, and that obviously says, okay, well, you know, you still got to get that other project done at the same time. So I think, I think this, is, this has to be a holistic approach here. I mean, everybody, council and staff, have got to, I think, uh, have realistic expectations and work together to try to tackle this thing.
2: Well, balancing priorities is never easy, and uh, you know it's certainly it's certainly something that you have to pay attention to if you're going to do it well. So that's what we're hoping to do here.
0: Dan, I pulled you out of a meeting for this. I appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll talk again soon. My pleasure, Bill. Dan McKinnon, of course, General Manager of Public Works. The, the numbers are astounding here when you look at this. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, they went through some rather uh, intricate uh, details about this, too, and uh, money that was allocated. As a matter of fact, the Waterfront Trust came up again. We can talk about that in more detail a little bit later on. But uh, when when you look at, at work that gets done and work that's paid for by consultants, and consultants aren't cheap, I mean, you know, not just here in Hamilton, but in just about every community and every municipality, they understand the pressure that cities are under, and that's why these guys are in the consulting business, because they can make a pretty good buck at it. And and I think, by and large, you get pretty good value for it, except, except, and, and this is one of the things that came up in the auditor's report yesterday, when they said there were a number of different studies that were done by consultants that just ended up going in somebody's bottom drawer. Nothing was ever done about them. That's a waste of time. That's a waste of money. And obviously money that was allocated to certain projects without a business case. That's a problem too. So it's not just hiring outside consultants. It's it's business practices as well that the city's got to get under control. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML.
0: Remember a couple of weeks ago we had the Ontario Labor Minister on, Kevin Flynn, Uh, And it had to do an awful lot with uh, the $15 minimum wage issue, which is still out there, obviously, and still being kicked around. Um, And we're waiting for the government to take the next steps on that. But in part of this legislation, this wide-arching legislation that we talked about, uh, the minister also said he wanted to do something about the alarming amount of part-time work that's out there. I mean, the good news is you can get a job, but the bad news is oftentimes it's a part-time job. Uh, And that's not as good for a whole lot of reasons. So what are we going to do about this? Well, the Labor Minister says they're going to actually make some changes to the legislation to encourage companies to hire people full-time. I'd like to see them do that, and I'd like to know how they're going to do that. Deirdre Pike has uh, been watching this issue for the longest time. She's a senior social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council here in the city, and she joins us to talk about this. Deirdre, how are you doing this morning?
3: Pretty good. Thanks, Bill. How are you doing? I'm,
0: I'm fine. Listen, I'm glad the minister is finally going to do something about this. I'm glad they've, they've got this on their radar right now, but man, this is a monster problem.
3: Oh, it sure is. And uh, as you uh, acknowledged in the intro, I've, we've all been at this for a long time. And so uh, the fact that it's taken, I'm sure that we've been talking about this um almost a decade for sure uh, if not a little bit longer uh, back when we started the living wage and fair employment coalition um between Mac and uh, and uh, the and SDRC in the community which is now under the living wage with uh with Tom and uh, the Roundtable. and um so we've been at this for a long time and uh now uh, there really there are some uh moves within bill 148 that um really need to be applauded some of the measures are quite um Responsive to things that we've talked about, uh, and uh, at the same time, of course, uh, it's never enough. And because it's taken so long, and they've uh, these agencies have such a foothold and are uh, you know making such grand revenues uh, off the backs of workers, uh, it is going to be difficult and it's going to be painful for the government to make uh, the changes that are necessary.
0: And, and by the way, yeah, we may need to make the point here too, dear. This is not a new issue. I know there are some that are saying, "Well, this is all being caused by that that minimum wage hike up to fifteen bucks an hour." And what other choice do employers have? They've been doing this for years, long before there's ever talk about raising the minimum wage. It, it just and we've you know it's it's happened increment. It's like creep, right? I mean, it's just a little bit at a time, uh, where all of a sudden we're noticing. Well, wait a second, that uh, that person's gone. Uh, they're hiring people on a part-time basis, and companies do that basically as a cost-cutting measure. But I mean. Uh, you know, so they're worried about their bottom line, but the bottom line of the individual that's actually employed is the one that we need to be concerned about too.
3: Absolutely. The uh, I remember standing on the street. It was 2008, and I was uh, you know just standing on King Street talking to a, a worker uh, at the city, and he'd worked um, at the city for seven years at that point, but was not considered a city employee. He was still under a temp agency, and was hoping you know that soon. Uh, he'd be considered full-time uh, a, a, city of employ- uh, a city of Hamilton employee. And sure enough, you know, luckily within, I think, a year or two, anyway, I've seen him since, and uh, he's now employed. But imagine working for a... Pla- and so what happens is, here he is doing the same task as his colleague, only earning minimum wage instead of the union wage that uh, QP 5167 employees get through the city uh, employment. So this is such a... Uh, it's such a clear way of uh, abdicating your uh, your um, responsibility as an employer to uh, treat your workers fairly and uh, respond to the rights of of the workforce. And uh, so it is just so late in coming to have any kind of um, chains put on these uh, these organizations that I think uh, just. Uh, embed have embedded precarious employment in our culture.
0: Well, and we need to talk more about them because they may not be on a lot of people's radar. And I know that when we had the discussion, this was a couple of months ago, I guess, around the beginning of the summer, about the LCBO's uh, potential strike, mm-hmm. as it was, and, and some of their concerns. And, and I talked to the union members, and and the odd time, when I go in to get a bottle of wine, I, I know the folks over there, and they're great people, and you mm-hmm. get talking to them about issues, and 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 we raised some of those issues then, Deirdre, and things like scheduling and uh, part-time. And, and most of the staff, I'm told, are, are, for instance, at the LCBO are, are part-time people, and there's a reason for that because they can cut down on costs. And, and they don't get guaranteed hours. They don't know when they're going to work from week to week. Some of them yeah. get called in for two- and three-hour shifts. Uh, it's not a four-hour minimum like it is with some unionized jobs. Yeah. And you take what you can get because you need the money. Uh, and, well, and, 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 and that's not just at the LCBO. This is going on with more and more companies now.
3: It is. And, and yet the LCBO is such a great example because here we have the government of Ontario introducing some of these changes to Bill 148 and their own corporation is, uh, you know, using the, the worst um, employment practices. And really, if you have not watched uh, Mary Walsh's documentary, Poor No More, yes, the same funny Mary Walsh, she walks right in to the president of the LCBO and demands to know about, uh, you know, they've already shown stories of various workers and their predicaments, and then uh, tries to, you know, walk in as, you know, not as the warrior woman, but still, uh, just so powerful. You've got, we've, we need to understand uh, these people that, yes, are employed in our neighbourhood stores, uh, how terribly they're treated by their employers, and in this case, the government.
0: Well, yeah. So, and so
3: temp agencies and, and all of that are being uh, used everywhere, and uh, really they have, they have led to... Um, you know they've led to to the, such an increase in foothold in, in precarious employment across the province.
0: Well, and especially in the case of the LBC LCBO we rub salt into that wound is they're making money hand over fist It's not like they can't afford to pay uh, they just need to increase their profit margin and 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 I know this it sounds like a cliche but they're doing it on the backs of part-time workers mm-hmm. uh, and gone are their days I mean you know if there's an awful lot of people that are, are listening to us right now that that can remember even growing up that they you know if their mom and dad worked, It was a part-time job, maybe, for one of them. But more often than not, there was a full-time job. Now, maybe you didn't have benefits. Maybe you didn't have drug plans back in those days. But you knew you were going to work 40 hours a week. You knew you were going to get a paycheck. And and there was some stability in the household. But when you're working part-time and you get eight hours one week and 15 the next and maybe five the week after that, I I mean, how do you plan an existence? How do you make sure that your rent's paid? How do you buy groceries?
3: Yes. Yeah, you know, and, and these are the, the questions that we know the terrible truth, the answers to. And but and another, uh, I think, key question around temp work agencies is, um, and what you're saying about back in the day, back in the day, you knew that if you were working at the City of Hamilton, the City of Hamilton was your employer. But now you can be working years and years at, and, and it's not just a city, you know, pick another another place. I mean, um uh yeah there's all kinds of industries that are using uh temp agencies instead of their own uh human resource department to hire people and uh And the main reason they're doing this is that the legislation that currently exists uh says that um, when you show up for example to the city of Hamilton but you're actually employed by a deco or ideal or whoever it is that uh, is one of these temp agencies um uh if you get hurt on the job, the liability belongs to the temp agency and not the city of Hamilton. And that is the billion-dollar question. And the city, not the city, but the government of Ontario must close that loophole in order to make it less um, profitable for, temp, uh, for uh, companies uh, to hire and use uh, temp agencies.
0: Is that part of the legislation?
3: Uh, they say that there's, there's, uh, they've moved a little bit in that direction, but it, they haven't. They haven't closed uh, th- that loophole at all. Uh, so Kevin um, Flynn uh, has not responded to that. He's done some. There, there are some important things in there, but uh, they haven't closed that for sure. They um, one of the things that we were looking for, for example, was uh, to, um, sorry, was to uh, have a, a place be limited in the number of temp workers that they could hire and that's another area that uh, that he said seemed too difficult to uh, to monitor but you know to say um, like imagine again a corporation that has almost 8,000 employees um, you know to limit them at least that only 20% of your 8,000 employees may be hired through a temp agency and uh, this is not even um, that wasn't in Bill 148, even though we've been pressing for that for a long time. So there are a couple of um, positive uh, directions, but that's not one of them. But the one thing that is good is that they say that there is a way that they're going to ensure that uh, somebody who's making twenty dollars an hour uh, will not be standing next to somebody who's currently making, uh, you know, while well, uh, you know, soon it'll be fourteen dollars an hour. Um, uh, in the uh, incremental uh, minimum wage increase, so um, so that way temp agencies will be required somehow. It, it, uh, they're they're saying that they're going to um, equalize that pay, and that will that will mean a great deal. But well, it, again, there's so many things that aren't happening.
0: Well, exactly, and and I know the word fairness gets thrown an ar- around an awful lot by governments these days, but I mean that that really I think needs to be the the, the motivation for what's going on here. Uh, I, I get the fact that, look, at business people are going to be hearing this and saying, well, boy, that's just going to put more pressure on our business now. That's really going to affect this. I'm gonna, we're going to have to start laying people off. Well, no, you don't. But there's there's got to be some, I think, dedication here to the employees as well. And and maybe that's something that's missing. We all know the, the hardships that many businesses and the economy went through uh, back during the recession eight years ago. We get that. And we know that a lot of them were crippled. But, you know, we're over that. But we're starting to come back now. Uh, And and everybody paid a price for that. The people that own the businesses, the people that worked in the businesses did. But I think now there has to be some fairness and equity for those people that are working in the business. Uh, And and that comes right down, obviously, to to maybe that two-way commitment. You you know, the worker's commitment, obviously, to the company, but at the same time, the company's commitment to the worker. That used to be be a given. It's not there anymore in a lot of companies anyway. And I think we have to reestablish that.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I you know I, how I often uh, quote someone like Henry Ford who uh, wanted to ensure that his workers would be able to afford the product that they created. So he paid them enough that they could at that, that time buy a car. And so how is it these days that we have workers in the city of Hamilton where the um, the company uh, you know that Canada is known for, Tim Horton's, Uh, I have spoken to, you know, I just, I don't even, anyway, it doesn't really matter how I end up uh, chatting with them, but I do talk to a lot of workers at coffee shops and ask them, um, you know, do you buy your coffee here? No way. You know, I, why would I spend money on that uh, when I can bring it from home and I can't really afford it? They only give me this many shifts or whatever, whatever. So how is it possible that you're buying your coffee or you're getting your, um, you know, your wine, whatever it is, find out, like where are these relationships in our communities gone that, uh, you know, soon I mean, soon we might not have them um, it, when everything is bought online and we uh, we lose all of that human touch. And then that's how it becomes that we don't care as much. And uh, uh, I think that you're right. I think that companies who have, you know, in desperate times, uh, they picked up these desperate measures, I must say, these temp agencies that um, really uh, negate that relationship between uh, worker and employer. Um, and uh, it is time to let those go because, uh, you know, they were never right to begin with. Uh, and, uh, and now that, like as you're saying, the economy is turning around, it's time to really be thinking about the families that you're impacting by continuing to use these precarious employment measures.
0: Well, and I mean, let's connect the dots here. I mean, wh- didn't we just cover a story here two weeks ago about not enough school bus drivers uh, as we began uh-huh. the school year? Uh, no and, and then I, t- I got, you know what, I got emails from people that said, look, God, I drove one of those. You know how much I got paid? No wonder they quit. No wonder because of the grief that they put up with for the money that they're paid. Uh, And, and, you know, one follows another. I mean, if people are underpaid and unhappy at their job, they're going to go looking for another job, which is actually not good for the company. So why doesn't the company just make an investment in their workers? Uh, You mentioned Henry Ford did that. I mean, Richard Branson, who's made a few bucks in his time, too, Mm -hmm. uh, is quoted as saying, he says, the customer is not my first priority. My workers are my first priority because if they're happy and productive, they'll make the customer happy. Exactly, what an interesting exactly. theory.
3: Yeah, we see that over and over again. So I'm, I'm happy where I work right now, but this morning I pretended that I was looking for a job as a bus driver in Hamilton. And, uh, and so I went to the, uh, you know, it popped up automatically. It happened to be the Attridge site, which is a common name around here for sure. Yeah. And um, uh, so as I tried to fill in my uh, resume, it became clear I wasn't really applying to, um, to Attridge. It was another company, and uh, I have it open. I I don't know if I'll be able to find it quick enough, but um, it was certainly another employer, uh, Indeed. It's called Indeed, uh, and they will, you know, it says something about, you know, hundreds of employers and thousands of jobs, you know, so it's clearly that they're hiring bus drivers, school bus drivers, through a temp agency, and so now we have children standing on the curbs waiting for, you know, I heard a woman interviewed this morning in the GTA, you know, um, her kids waiting 50 minutes uh, past the time that the bus was supposed to be there. The company says they're 13 workers short. And uh, the, the school board says they're 13 workers short and uh, that the, sc- that the uh, bus driving company uh, just can't re- respond to this work shortage. And, of course, it's about paying enough. Uh, you would have a better uh, a workforce, of course, and let them know that they're working for Attridge. You know, you, lo- you read the Attridge website, You'd want to work for a company, like it has a great history, it's local, it's, you know, a long time here. And uh, and uh, and then you find out, oh no, your paycheck, you know, it might look like it's from Attridge, it's really from Indeed. You know, that's not how you build morale. That's not how I become a committed worker and, uh, and want to do my job the best I can for this community.
0: Where are and they? I don't
3: know when employers will, will figure that out.
0: Deirdre, where are they with this? I mean, Minister Flynn says he wants to do something about this. They said they want to listen right now. Uh, the the, the, uh, the sand's running under the hourglass here. I mean, I know they're back at work this week at Queen's Park, but uh, you know that uh, there's going to be a break right around Christmas time and then there's going to be an election. Who knows if they're even going to go back to work after Christmas break because of the uh, the pending election that could be coming up. That's happened in the past before. There's a lot of legislation these guys have to cover. Mm-hmm.
3: And, um, yeah, so, you know, it's uh, past first reading they've done. You know, I, I spoke about Bill 148 wearing a couple of hats uh, in the summer, um and uh, those those hearings have have taken place, and so uh, it you know that's what we need to do right now is put the pressure on uh, to get these things passed. Um, I know that the NDP has is calling for a lot more um, and and I agree that there needs to be a lot more, and at the same time, I don't want to see this movement stopped you know this movement that would see workers paid uh you know in hamilton they would uh by next year get $15 an hour uh instead of you know the 11 something now and um uh, that would still be 85 cents below the living wage and yet i want to say yes to that i i want the government i want uh, ontarians to say yes to that $15 and and then keep pushing you know um this is what we need to do but we need to get it in quickly and so of course i want to be talking to uh uh, you know, to to Minister McNeekin and all those that, uh, you know, have this influence to, to keep it moving. And, and we are having good conversations. I think uh, there's, I, I am very hopeful right now.
0: Well, it goes to your point, too, that when we initiated this discussion about living wage and even the minimum wage increase that they've talked about, uh, that's, that's one piece of the puzzle. There's no one thing here that's going to rectify some of the injustices here. Uh, it's going to take a whole package, and doing something about uh, this temp work has actually got to be part of that as well.
3: That's right, because there's tons of people who are making good money in terms of, you know, like they might be over 60 grand a year uh, in in some places, uh, the way um, precarious employment can be, they might be on, but it still could be, um, you know, it's still precarious, and so uh you know they might not their contract's over in three months and they have no idea where money's coming from next so it's happening in every sector uh in education and healthcare, care um, and so uh yeah it's, it's time for for everybody to check those practices and if the government is moving on this then uh you know i just hope that private employers will do the same thing
0: that would be great uh, deirdre thanks as always great to get your perspective on this thanks for the time
3: Thanks, Bill. Nice to talk to you again. Talk Take again care.
0: soon. Deirdre Pike, thank course, you, you. Uh, from the Social Planning and Research Council.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.